Welcome back to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline. I'm Jed Sugarman. And I'm Julie Sook. We're both professors at Fordham Law School in New York and co-hosts of your podcast about threats to constitutional democracy and what to do about them. After the crisis of the Supreme Court's recent decisions on abortion, guns, and climate, we launched the Constitutional Crisis Hotline by asking in our first episode whether it was time to give up on the U.S. Constitution. One of our guests in episode one, Sam Moyne, even suggested that we abandon constitutionalism and con law altogether. So today we have terrific guests to discuss another option, amending the Constitution. In the United States, our Constitution's Article 5 specifies the processes that may be followed to make a constitutional amendment. And so we bring you Episode 5 about Article 5. So this is the full text. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which, in either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by the conventions in three-fourths thereof, which is about 37 states. Is that right? 38. 38. 38 states. Thanks for the math. All right. And as one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article. Let's pause there. Those are the, they may have been purposeful in not naming what it was they were making unamendable. That was the African slave trade. And that was the first clause, and the fourth clause was about taxation. Uh, and that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. So that's Article 5. Article 5 is known as one of the most difficult amendment rules when compared to amendment rules in constitutions around the world. And today, just imagine two-thirds of Congress agreeing to anything at all and then getting 38 state legislatures to agree as well. So just for some perspective, the last time we had an amendment added to the Constitution was 30 years ago. That's 1992. And that amendment, the 27th Amendment about congressional pay, was actually written by James Madison in 1789. Before that, the last amendment added to the Constitution was in 1971. So it's really been half a century. In this episode, we ask, is our constitution unamendable? Jillipore recently wrote an article in The New Yorker on the United States' unamendable constitution, and she is joining us today. She is the David Woods Kemper 1941 Professor of American History at Harvard University and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Welcome, Jill. Hey, thanks so much for having me. We'll also be joined by Zachary Elkins, a political science professor at the University of Texas, Austin. He's the director of the Comparative Constitutions Project and Constitute, which is an incredible website that I use all the time and that I recommend to all of our listeners. There you can find many resources about constitutionalism, including most of, if not all of the world's constitutions in English translation uh, and many other useful searchable uh, texts. Welcome, Zach. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We also have a student with us today, Taryn Gallagher at Fordham Law School, calling in to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline with some of her questions for our guests, too. Hi, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for being here with us today. I thought we could just start with asking both of you, Zach and Jill, um, is the United States Constitution unamendable? What does American history or comparison with the world's constitutions tell us about this? Um, yeah, I do think it is effectively unamendable. It was not meant to be unamendable. I think it has become unamendable. And I think that's a kind of calcification that contributes to our political instability in the United States today. There's a wonderful article by Vicki Jackson on the myth of the unamendability of the Constitution, in which she suggests that the Constitution, you know, obviously it's not technically unamendable. It could be done. Um, <laughs> but the cult of veneration has made the Constitution more difficult to amend than 
It should... Do you locate that moment of unamendability in yeah. a particular time or identify it? I mean, we have 27 amendments, which is actually not a lot given how long uh, our Constitution has been in effect. But uh, from those 27 that succeeded, and I know you've also studied many that have failed and never made it into the Constitution. See it as happening at a particular time. Yeah, I do. I mean, there are, it's not unusual for there to have been long stretches where there are no amendments ratified. Um, there have been more than 10,000 introduced as joint resolutions in Congress. Uh, the project that I work on, AMEND, which is a sister project of, of Zach's project, Constitute, aims to pull them all together and do some, uh, make them available in a way that we could study them more carefully, because I think we've kind of lost a sense of constitutional imagination. That's one of the um, problems with the Constitution having become effectively unamendable. But for me, you know, I really think it's the as a historian, and I am, will make clear, I am not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I'm not a policymaker. I don't have policy prescriptions to offer here. Um, but as a historian, I think it's the derailment of the Equal Rights Amendment, which was first introduced into Congress. No one's better to talk about this than you, Julie. But in 1923, and was sent to the states after it passed in, in 1972, you know, should have been uh, ratified, uh, was derailed in the 1970s and 1980s, and I think was a necessary political settlement, political and constitutional settlement in the United States. And I think that derailment really contributes to our political instability. And I think it's actually uh, what, in a sense, has, in that notional way, made the Constitution unamendable. And uh, so it's part of what inspired me to work on the project that I've undertaken, which is thinking about the history of of constitutional failure. Wow. So that's really fascinating because, of course, the Equal Rights Amendment is a provision that almost every other constitution that we consider uh, a constitution in our peer democracies has. Like every every constitution guarantees equal rights to women in one way or another. Uh, but here I want to invite uh, Zach to come in about the unamendability question. Is it unamendable when you think about uh, all these other constitutions that you've studied? It certainly seems this, that way. And uh you know, I have to say, first of all, that Jill's project of men has gotten me really excited about the amendment process in a way that I hadn't before. And it evidently, it has been hard. And if you look at the process, it seems hard. Um, and then when you compare it to other processes across the world, it is certainly hard. Uh, I think one way to think about it, uh, when you compare all these amendment processes, is to think of the number of actors that have to approve the thing. Um, and the U.S., that's, uh, you know, two significant ones. Obviously, the state legislatures are a very high hurdle, maybe higher than the founders thought. Um, but then also how consensual each of those bodies has to be. And so, you know, what the supermajority is exactly. And I think if you start putting those things together, um, as Tom Ginsburg and I did in a book and built, built a model which predicts the amendment rate, you get a sense of where the U.S. lies. And you have to incorporate a few other things, such as the time dimension, um, that is, if a body has to approve it twice, and also uh, whether there are opportunities for proposal. Because it's not just approving it, it's whether certain bodies can actually put the proposal forward that matter, too. Uh, right. It can be stymied there. And when you when you stack the U.S. up against other countries, it's well below the mean um, and uh, I'd say the bottom five percentile. And, uh, you know, you have other countries uh, like uh, Brazil, Chile and and that are, you know, in the top 10 percent in terms of ease and Mexico somewhere in the middle uh, around the average. Um, so that's just estimates based on uh, the model we built, which is imperfect, because one thing is it's based on the number of amendments per year. But you also have to look at the failures um, that Jill looks at in her data set, because we don't have access to how many times for all these countries that actually tried to amend the data set. We just know how, time, how many times they did. And um, so the U.S. looks really bad for only having 27 amendments out of 240 years, but it looks really bad once you take into account all the attempts, um, all the, the plate appearances, I guess I would say as a baseball fan, 
Um, and so, you know, you sort of wonder why yeah. the U.S. keeps on getting sent up to the plate uh, after all these strikeouts. Um, you know, it's so far below the Mendoza line, just to use a baseball analogy. Yeah, right. I mean, essentially, you need a denominator, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, to do anything meaningful here. And we haven't had the denominator. Yeah. And it's also the 240 years uh, that seems to be long uh, for the duration of a constitution. Uh, how about Taryn? Uh, did you want to ask a question about that? So one thing I was wondering is, Jill, you mentioned in your article that most constitutions around the world last about 17 years, but that the U.S. Constitution has endured over 200 years. And I was wondering, is this type of longevity a feature or a fault of the U.S. Constitution? <laughs> uh, well, I think Zach will have a better answer to that question since this, the number 17 comes from his work at the Comparative Constitutions Project. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on how you think about constitutions. Constitutions are a technology, right? They're invented in the 18th century. They have a kind of empirical feel to them. They're, they're a vision of the Enlightenment that if we could, it is a kind of moral perfectionism that lies behind the notion that you could design a, a perfect machine that you could set in motion like a clock and all the ways in which the constitution is meant to be self-correcting um, include not only um, the separation of powers and various checks and balances, but most especially the power to amend the Constitution. And I think it's worth, not in the same spirit of originalism, but in the spirit of proper historical study, thinking about what amendment meant in the 18th century. And it meant something mm -hmm. quite different than we maybe use the word today. I mean, you know, I happen to be doing a fair amount of farming lately, and we talk about amendments all the time. You have to amend the soil all the time. Every year you have to think about soil <laughs> amendments. That? Soil amendments are things you have to put into the soil so stuff will continue to grow because the soil <laughs> becomes exhausted. Um, that's, yeah, an like, eight, that's an like 18th century blood. notion of amendment, the, the, <laughs> the notion of mending your ways, the notion of moral progress, improving something that's working just yeah. fine but could work better is how yeah. the 18th century word amendment Work. So we oh. understand it constitutionally in this quite narrow sense. Oh, it's just like a like a, a textual correction. It's mm -hmm. not. I mean, amendment. The whole idea of it in the state constitutions when they were drafted and um, in the in the, in the the constitutional convention had just a much bigger sense of repair, improvement, moral progress. Uh, it's keeping something alive, making it possible for something <laughs> to grow. Um, so I think we have quite a, a impoverished notion of what amendment yeah. even is. So, yeah, to my mind, for something to go this long, um, having become essentially calcified, you're looking at a, a, a barren soil where nothing can really any longer mm -hmm. grow, where the soil is compacted. There's not enough nitrogen in there. You got to add some lime. Like I, I so I, I <laughs> do think it's, you know, when we want to ask like, if it break, if it were to break, how do you fix it? You have to amend it. Um, it's broken. It can't. In, in what among the things that's broken about it is it can't be fixed. Can I just jump in on that metaphor? And this also might connect to the the, the year seventeen that Zachary has studied. Um, your soil metaphor reminds me of where Jefferson said that the that what the the soil of democracy needs to be ref refreshed. Help me. Re needs to be refreshed every generation yeah. with the Don't with align the, with me with this Jeffersonianism, though. I'm just going <laughs> to well, wave a flag of well. <laughs> distinction. And he would say contradictory things. But it is interesting that your metaphor of soil here was one that Jefferson, a farmer, was thinking about and also talked about the usufruct of the living, right? Usufruct comes from the fruct, fructose is fruit. So he was also thinking about this. It, that also ties in, Zachary, to the 17-year the exactly. cycle in the rest of the world fits what Jefferson said about constitutions. It just doesn't fit the American constitution, but that yeah. 17 years sort of fits a generational turnover, um, maybe an apple turnover, if we're still talking <laughs> about fruit and farming. Yeah. Sorry, but th that's a yeah. maybe a segue to thinking about the significance of seventeen in the world, but not in America. Well, and by the way, in our in our book, it's we the actual number was nineteen, which actually perfectly matches Jefferson's uh, prescription for how long it should last, um, which was deeply eerie. Just to come on the heels of, of Jill's point, um, I mean, I think it is a hard problem in terms of 
normatively how to think about it. And, uh, you know, uh, with representation and modernization on the one hand and then stability and the preservation of these very positive symbols on the other. And, you know, Jefferson, yes, he was a farmer, but he was also an architect. So I want to use an architectural okay, metaphor. Let's switch metaphors. Let's switch metaphors briefly. And um, I think of it this way. If you inherited this beautiful building or maybe not so beautiful, uh, <laughs> just 200 year building, um, what would you do with it? And you probably if it had, you know, a leaky roof and a shaky foundation, you would improve those, make some small improvements. Or 18th century plumbing. Yeah, you want, yeah, and the electricity or no, the lack of. Um, but I think it is tough because, uh, you know, there's a lot of other buildings out there around you, um, that in some ways are just a lot more comfortable, uh, energy efficient, et cetera. And it's tempting to take the whole thing down. And I was thinking, um, just to give you an example, I think all of us spent some time on the Yale campus. I just happened to be in Sterling Memorial Library. Of course, every organization that's been around for a long time have all has these kinds of buildings, but at least when I was there, you know, this is a 1932 Gothic cathedral almost, which was musty and dark mm-hmm. and damp. Um, and, uh, you know, I was back there recently and it was improved with a lot of glass and wood and just succeeded to uh, just warm it up, make it much more livable with a lot of modern conveniences. And so architecturally, I feel like that's a case of preserving um, something historic and symbolic, uh, but at the same time making some touches which are modern um, and just really bring out the grandeur and the beauty of the building. And I, that's how I think about the U.S. Constitution in some ways, um, is, is, a, is preserving it by making exactly those kinds of touches. But to come back to Taryn's question and to Jefferson, right? So Jefferson was a farmer. He was an architect. He was an inventor. He was also a slave owner that we, and that ties into maybe a question that Taryn's asking about longevity and for historians or for just American civics, is it possible that one of the advantages of the longevity of the constitution going all the way back to 1787 is that we don't delete the three fifths clause, the the clause that said slaves will be counted as three fifths of a person. We don't delete those provisions, even of article five that say, look, the founders thought that the only two provisions of their constitution that should be unamendable for the next 20 years were the slave trade and taxation on the slave trade. So it actually, I mean, the argument here might be that it's a feature of the longevity that we have this civics lesson on a, on a, on a, on a piece, on a, on a small document that we can put in, I'm, I'm holding up the, a pocket copy of the constitution, um, that we can read in brief, and it gives us a bit of a tour all the way back to the origins of the slave owners and the founders' principles all, all the way up to today. Well, Jed, the, I don't think that the word slave is used in the clauses that That's refer right. to slavery. That's correct. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I'm trying to think about whether I think that matters because, uh, one, uh, if it did say slavery, I think that would be a very good argument for deleting uh, as opposed to preserving. Uh, but the fact that it uses other words, and we all know what it's referring to, uh, suggests to me, I mean, I think this gets back to the metaphor that Zach was talking about, which is we need some touches. Uh, whereas I interrupted you earlier to say, I think we're talking about plumbing, uh, like the actual structure uh, and a, a structure that has that Article 5 is part of. Uh, and Article 5 relies on the structure of uh, what I think many would agree is a malapportioned Senate in the 21st century. Uh, and, and we could go on about other uh, features of structure. So I want to just bring it back to Jill. Uh, and now that we have both farming and architecture on the table, uh, what do you think uh, about this idea of uh, mending to, to fix something that's broken versus m- mending to improve? Uh, and um, or, you know, other ways of thinking about the amendment process in relation to these various metaphors. Yeah, I um, I guess I would start with what the consequence of the unamendability is or how we could think about it broadly, historically. And that is that obviously the Constitution has been very meaningfully amended, you know, first with the Bill of Rights, then with the Reconstruction Amendments, then with the progressive constitutional revolution where the amendment 
of the Constitution began to really fall apart in the 60s and 70s was with constitutionalizing the mass political movements of the 1960s and 1970s, which include women's rights, what becomes LGBTQ, the environmental movement, yeah, and the conservative resurgence, right? So all of those movements, mass movements, have not been constitutionalized by way of constitutional amendment, but they have instead... Were there other proposed amendments that you've looked at? I mean, we've talked about the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, obviously trying to constitutionalize the gains of the women's movement of that era. But are there other amendments that are failed amendments that you see as movement amendments from yeah, that period? Yeah, and, and Zach and I, we've been collaborating in all these fun ways that we um, are kind of enjoying too much to ever finish up. But we both were really interested in environmental rights amendments or environmental protection amendments. And in the U.S., uh-huh. those start in 1969. Right, and it's Gaylord Nelson, who is behind the first Environmental Rights Amendment. Uh, he also then goes ahead um, to propose Earth Day, first Earth Day, which is in 1970. And think about all that environmental protection legislation that comes out during Nixon's, um, really, the, the Nixon's first term, the EPA and the Clean, Clean Air and Clean Water Act. Right, the, Nixon says in 1970, this is going to be the environmental decade, the 1970s. And Nelson revises and reintroduces his environmental amendment in 1970, 1971. You know, we did, I I work on this scripted podcast called The Last Archive. We did a fictive episode for this new season, which imagines an alternative reality in which the environmental rights amendment was actually ratified in 1972. Wow. And what the consequences would have been of of that ratification. The reason that we worked with Zach on this was, you know, Zach's incredible data set of all the world's constitutions, you can see, you can plot out. It's really around that time, the late 1960s, when nation states around the world began introducing environmental rights provisions into their new constitutions. And you see then, um, you know, this flurry of them and they start and then they kind of continue. And there's a flurry of them in the U.S. at that moment, but they go nowhere. And you so you could think about, and, and Zach and I have talked about a kind of really interesting uh, mode of study would be to think structurally about the underdevelopment of the U.S. Constitution. Like what are the costs of wow. never having undertaken that by way of amendment? Now, that's not to say there's not been a lot of environmental legislation that we shouldn't care about, yeah. but all of it can be struck down by the Supreme Court, and much of it will be, and some of it already has mm-hmm. been, right? So it's right. the reversibility. So in the absence of an ability to change the Constitution by amendment, the only way to change the Constitution is to convince five justices of the Supreme Court to change the Constitution by reading it differently. That is very tenuous. It, it contributes to, you know, what real critics of the court would call, you know, a, a judistocracy um, or a judicial oligarchy. So there are real structural consequences and they include a problem with the separation of powers and they include the underdevelopment of, of constitutionalism in the United States. That does take it for granted that the numerator is five, because the denominator is nine. And I just, maybe we can come back to this, but I just want to say the framers were knowing that the constitution might have longevity and need flexibility for practical purposes. There, they didn't define a number of Supreme Court justices and they left it to a much easier majority vote of Congress to add justices. But we can, I'm happy to come back to that later as, as solutions. But Zach, do you want to jump in on that piece about environmental amendments around the world? Yeah, I'd love to hear about the environmental amendments and especially are they environmental rights? Amendments like who has environmental rights, or are they framed differently, like structurally? Uh, I'm I'm sure there's a variety, but if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't have the text in front of me, but I do recall that uh, the first mention came at the tail end of the 19th century, and then these days, um, I think it's of of constitutions written the last 20 or 30 years. uh, I think about 75 percent have some uh, mention of them, both rights. Uh, but also commissions. I think that's one of the. I think it was 144 out of 196. Is that so okay? Wow. <laughs> wow. So, Jill, my math was almost correct, right? Would yeah, I say 75 percent? Really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but we went back for this podcast episode and sort of looked at it, sort of at that, but also everything that was going on in Congress. The, you know, the take up around Earth Day. Christopher Stone's Should Trees Have Standing article had come out. The Lorax was on television. Yeah, there was totally. a lot of momentum <laughs> around the idea. In yeah. fact, in, in, the, in our fictive version, it's an environmental rights, like in the environment has rights amendment. We even yeah. had, um, we had composers write a fake schoolhouse rock. 
sort of systemic uh, models where the pieces fit together more cohesively and then went back and forth with the uh, with the architectural client, um, something like that. So, Jill, do you think that in the U.S. context, there are reasons to fear popular participation at the front end? Or what do you think of some of the debates we're having now with regard to whether a constitutional convention would be desirable? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm somewhat baffled by that. I'm really curious to know there, you know, there are a number of U.S. states that have um, regular cycles where a, a, a state ballot initiative determines whether there will be a new constitutional convention for right. a state constitution. And there are a couple coming up, you know, we're talking a few days before the midterms. There are a couple of states are, are voting on that. I, I, and I don't think anybody since Rhode Island has had a constitutional convention, maybe 1986. Um, so... I'd be curious to see if one of these states triggers a constitutional convention, whether at the state level, Americans can hold a constitutional convention without political violence at this point. Um, I, I'm, I would be somewhat concerned about that. Not concerned about um, popular opinion, but concerned about the possibility of political violence, honestly. Really? At the convention? Yeah, I would be worried about that. I mean, I attended the party conventions in 2016 in Cleveland and Philadelphia the Trump and Hillary Clinton conventions. I was reporting on them and I didn't have, you know, a lot of history, but um, I hadn't been to other conventions, but they both seem quite close to physical violence. And I, I mean, we are in in quite a bit of a worse state in that, you know, there were a lot of guys walking around with guns, um, especially in Cleveland. So, but I am really fascinated by the proposals that have been made. And this is one of the things that's frustrating to watch as a citizen about, um, the unamendability, there's a kind of uh, suppression of imagination. But, you know, as you know, the National Constitution Center assembled three teams a couple of years ago, a libertarian team, a progressive team and a conservative team to say, write yeah. a new constitution. Um, and only the libertarians left Article 5 alone. The progressives and the conservatives both made amending the constitution easier in different ways. And I know, Julie, you were involved in 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 devising a new a replacement for Article 5 that I think um, uses the uh, the mechanism of citizen assembly. So I actually would love to hear more about that and how, how what you envision yeah. as a possibility. Well, we gathered a bunch of political scientists and law professors to deliberate over the course of several months on Zoom during the pandemic to write a new constitution for the United States. So I was on the team of a few law professors who worked on the amendment rule. And on the one hand, people who are used to uh, the difficulty of amendment in the United States wanted to make the amendment rule a little bit easier. On the other hand, if you look at the history uh, in other countries of military dictatorships or other auto- autocrats using an easy amendment rule to entrench their own power uh, and certainly to trample on the rights of powerless minorities, uh, we wanted to think of ways of preventing an easy amendment rule from uh, becoming a tool of autocrats or rights viol- human rights violators. Uh, so the two-track system that we thought of was, first, we could copy the state constitutions. Many state constitutions have an easier amendment rule, which just says that you have to pass by a majority in uh, both houses of the legislature in two um, Subsequent or in it, you have to pass it twice uh, in two consecutive legislative sessions. Uh, So you have an intervening election uh, and then a referendum by the people, uh, but a bare majority vote in each of those, uh, each passage by the legislature and a referendum by the people. Uh, But that seems like an easy enough amendment rule. Uh, We uh, created a mechanism by which if Congress decides uh, by a majority or supermajority. Uh, I can't remember which we chose, actually. But if Congress makes the determination uh, that this is the kind of amendment uh, that uh, implicates or violates or changes people's rights, uh, and obviously there's a lot of interpretation that will go on uh, with what that means, uh, but once that determination is made, uh, we wrote a rule that said then a citizen's assembly is required, uh, and we said that the citizen's assembly should be composed in the way that Ireland does by mixing together uh, randomly selected citizens with some demographic and geographic representation, uh, maybe from a jury pool, the way that you pick a jury, uh, plus some randomly selected uh, members of Congress uh, to form that deliberative assembly. 
Uh, and um, and I think we would were envisioning that there would be architects. I don't think we wrote all of the structure into the rule. Uh, but if you look at the way that it's worked in places like Ireland, there's architecture. Uh, you have former Supreme Court justices sometimes acting as um, the uh, presider of the assembly and controls like which uh, academic experts come to testify to the assembly. Uh, and so there's some way in which uh, the flow of information and the sequencing of the debate of the issues uh, is not a total free-for-all uh, with regard to the people, but I think it structures a way by which the where popular sentiment resides on certain issues can be gauged, uh, particularly if I would think that the kinds of proposals that pr compromise rights would be proposals that go to the divisive social issues like abortion and guns and um, and even the environment that cause polarization now. So I think that would be a valuable process. And in Ireland, I think it has been an interesting process for at least gauging public opinion before then you use the formal method of adopting by parliament and then going to referendum. But I think it was really to, just to try to get a balance of uh, an easier amendment rule uh, with something that prevents the, um, the rise of autocrats uh, entrenching their own power by way of amendment. One thing I like about this proposal, Julie, among other things, is I, d I did a thought experiment. Uh, my concern was <laughs> making it easier to amend the Constitution um, might open the doors that you were already talking about, about autocrats. And then I did a thought experiment about, let's say, Pearl Harbor and the Japanese internment and uh, and whether you might have uh, you know too low a threshold that might have these problems or 9-11. And then I just thought through the, ele the the cycle of three different elections, like, you know, Pearl Harbor happens 1941. You would have to have won the, the, the forces that might have restricted civil rights would have had to have won 1942, 1944. And then 1946 is the end of the war or after 9-11, you know, 2002, 2004. Those were, you know, not elections that went against rights are uh, more or less. But, but then by 2006, there was a cooling off period. So I just want to note that that cycle, the, the way that your proposal uses time and three different elections um, is uh, is an interesting historical way to think about time and is a cooling off period that seems it seems like it would have worked in various points of crisis. I kind of like it for similar reasons, uh, this proposal. One, because um, I think it is important for most democracies to have one or two unamendable clauses, or at least it's not unamendable, I guess, in this version. It's just uh, a little bit harder for the rights provisions. Right. And I think most democracies have their Achilles heel. So in Latin America, it's a re-election of the president. And so having a, a strict rotation in office, you can't amend in the Constitution, I think is incredibly important. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is that I like the, the, the way you describe the role of the citizens. Um, and, and you, Jill was talking earlier about some of the violence that ensues sometimes when you bring people together for political reform, especially these days. And I, I've been looking at some of the evidence from the deliberative poll, which I've always really liked, as I mentioned earlier. And, uh, you know, one, you know, Cass Sunstein and others worried that, um, it would devolve into either a shouting match or in just one side that had larger numbers, just steamrolling the other. Um, and when I was looking at the evidence, you know, they've been doing this across countries for 30 years or so, um, it's been pretty civil and uh, you don't get the kind of steamrolling that people worried about. So I, I've, I've become just from analyzing some of those episodes. And do you think it's because people just get along when they have to deliberate together or were there other features that were built in that you think um, allowed people to avoid violence? Because this is a real concern. Yeah, no, in talking to, so um, in our department, uh, Bob Luskin is the one who's been working with Jim Fishkin on this for all these years. Yeah. And one thing that he says, and it bears out in the evidence a little bit, is it really matters uh, who moderates these and what kind of right. information comes in and whether it's balanced. And, you know, that really matters as to how conscientious and substantive the discussion is um, and not allowing, you know, some of the more vocal people to dominate. I think the moderators as a, you know, has a big impact there. Jill, did you also want to jump in? Oh, yeah. No, I'm a huge fan of the Fishkin deliberative polling model. And I would say um, even just, you know, we all sure give public lectures to sort of mixed crowds where there's a real range of political views. And 
I have found in my own experience that it can be a really complicated crowd in a pretty big room. And if you offer up by way of preamble, um, something heartfelt about how we all come together because of our commitment to being in a room together and arguing things out respectfully that people pony up to that. I mean, sort of to echo what Zach's saying about a moderator. I mean, I wrote a book about the Tea Party movement years ago and I went around and I went to a lot of like town hall sorts of things. And, you know, people were kind of rude to me, but whatever, but they, but they were sort of rude to each other, like really brutal to each other. And I was totally taken aback by it because, you know, in the classroom, students are, if anything, like unwilling to disagree. So, but in the public, people are not willing to agree in a way. Um, so I took on the strategy of just uh, almost a, like a secular homily that I would give to start to just kind of like anoint the space with the the, the really important, decent work of being a, a preservation of public discourse. And then it, it like kind of worked like a miracle. So I really, that's not to say that's not deliberation, but like, I do think actually, um, I do believe in people's ability to convene together and decide how they believe the government should work. I really do believe that I am a lowercase Democrat in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. Am I, am I, you know, desperate for a new constitutional convention? Uh, I actually think there need to be a lot more leaders with national platforms who are doing that secular homily before yeah. we're ready for a constitutional convention. I was reading an article totally. recently about <laughs> how much it works to, um, th- there's some empirical work on if two political candidates vying for, say, a state Senate seat held a press conference or made a joint ad in which they shook hands and talked about how they really, things about they really liked about each other and how they were going to like fight fair and <laughs> that they, they both really cared about the state, um, that it, it really, it really works. Like it really yeah. works to convince people. Wow. Like actually these are just political differences, politics so, and everything. Yeah. So before right. I'm ready yeah. to have people gather, I, I actually want the political culture to stand up and do the right work. So just to jump in on that, I, I, part of it is that that was actually some of the logic of the founding in that decisive choice they made to not send the Constitution back to state legislatures, as we talked about before. They made the choice, like our conversation and, and like Julie's proposal um, emphasizes, a different body. So it was partly negative. It was partly they didn't want the officials in state legislatures who were invested in state power to be biased by their institutional background. But it was a positive point, too. I mean, the, the positive point was we want conventions that will bring a new body that's chosen for this purpose, to deliberate for this purpose, and to be able to have our national leaders who weren't already in the legislature to come from Philadelphia, right? We want our founders to go back and tell in the convention, this is why we did this. This is why we chose this um, passage. But let me just jump to a uh, maybe another question about that balance of the state and federal um, on this on this theme. I mean, a counter argument to making the federal constitution easier to amend is actually we do have lots of constitutions that are easy to amend and that's the state constitutions as we've been talking about. And this is maybe a good a- aspect of federalism, that we have a good mix or a hedge. We have state constitutions that are arguably too easy to amend. And to balance that out, we have a federal constitution that's hard to amend. And in a way, that's actually a, a, that's a good balance. It's a good check and balance of federalism and, and stability. Um, just want to, you know, think about that as a counter argument to me, to, uh, as an argument for the unamendability of the federal constitution. So there's a pretty good, uh, really good book about this by Robinson Woodward Burns called Hidden Laws. It looks yeah. at the interaction between state constitutions and the federal constitution and, and makes some of these claims about the way in which the state constitution's amendability takes the pressure off the federal government. And I can buy that, Jed, but I also have to say the constitution doesn't guarantee me equal rights. Like, there, that is an essential fundamental right that is not spelled out in our constitution. I, and I, I refuse to accept that. Like, I just don't, I, I don't, doesn't, I don't believe in the de facto equal rights yeah. of legislation. <laughs> I, you know, I, what about this country refuses to grant equal rights to women? Like I, on the basis of sex. Like, so, and I think, Jill, I think it's also deeper than that. The problem is also that we need federal legislation because some states will do what is necessary and other states won't to protect the equal rights of women. 
but we also have federal government structures that make it very hard to legislate. So this is also just getting back to the amendment rule itself. The malapportioned Senate actually can't even be amended by two-thirds of Congress and three-fourths of state legislatures. That you need every single state who would lose equal suffrage to agree, which is essentially unamendable. And I think it gets back to, and Zach was talking about how it's a good idea to have something unamendable in every constitution. In Germany, it's human dignity. But uh, we have the slave trade, at least only until 1808, uh, and the malapportioned Senate, which is essentially left to a different amendment rule uh, than the one that's already too difficult. And I think then it also creates an amendment process. What's What makes it unamendable is not just that it's two-thirds of both houses, but one of the houses that it's two-thirds of is actually very malapportioned. And so if we get back to all of this, it just seems like the proposal that, well, because we have the endurance of state constitutions, uh, the unamendability of the federal constitution is okay, uh, it really does get back to the unevenness with which we have policy that affects a lot of people because of the way in which the structures are set up. Uh, and then protected by the amendment rule itself. And so I wanted to just then get into uh, what you think the prospects are for not just for amendment under Article 5. I mean, is, would Jill, would you be in favor of trying to either change Article 5 or you mentioned the de facto ERA? Uh, the de facto ERA is a theory that uh, we have amendments that have actually implicitly been made to the Constitution outside of Article 5. And I don't know if we want to get too far into that rabbit hole right now, but I do want to ask you if our Constitution is functionally unamendable, but you think it needs to be fixed. What are some ways of thinking about uh, how we can make it amendable again? Is it through the change to Article 5 or is it through other ways of thinking about fixing the Constitution? Yeah, well, I think what doesn't work is making celebrities of Supreme Court justices and having all of our politics turn on their nominations. Right. Um, I agree. So yeah, totally. that I would just say is like, set that aside. That is a problem. Um, yes. I, you know, I am not a policymaker. Yes, instinctively, I wish the Constitution were a bit easier to amend. Can I imagine a process by which that could take place that doesn't involve political violence? No, I cannot. Um, you know, the reason that we have an amendment provision is that without it, the framers believed that the Republic would be subject to everlasting insurrection. And I think we kind of moving very close to that point. So I am concerned. <laughs> and therefore, my strategy, because I'm a historian, is to try to crack open the history and say, actually, the history right. of the Constitution's amendability is something we probably really need to understand quite a bit better in order to think more clearly about what lies ahead. So I'm not the person to be thinking more clearly about what lies ahead. I, 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 I can take a really good pair of spectacles and look at what, where we came from. It is worth pausing that the, the fact of the Constitution's unamendability changed its writing into a broader, you know, it changed the way they wrote the Constitution at different moments, right? And so, you know, there is no ERA, but... But in the founding and in Re and after Reconstruction, they you know they had a lot of specific provisions, but they wrote in a broad aspirational way uh, in the Bill of Rights, and then most specifically, they didn't define what they meant by equality. They used an open-ended phrase. They didn't say just you know the equal protection is open-ended, open-textured, and and they did this historically because they knew that the Constitution would be so hard to amend in the future that they punted these questions to future courts and Congresses to take that open invitation and invite expansion. So uh, I'm going to disagree with that, Ted. A, yeah. I'm, I'm going to disagree with that. Um, okay. First of all, they didn't know it was going to be so hard to amend. It, they, there were no parties. Right. There were no parties. Um, not, not only were there no polarized parties, there were no parties at all. A double supermajority requirement is, is the work of an instant when there are no parties. But what about um, there are fewer states. It's a completely different political culture. Also, I don't think the Bill of Rights are full of the loftiest sentiments. I just don't think the Third Amendment is like the, the, the timeless <laughs> thing, yeah. nor is the Second Amendment. I actually Amendment? think that's part of the veneration. Well, the Fourteenth Amendment may not mm. have met the requirements mm. of Article 5. I, that's true. That's sneaky. That's a sneaky good point, Julie. Not that there isn't a great deal to cherish and 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 and, and to value not only about the language, but about the political stability. Um, but you know, it's the it's Declaration of Independence constitutionalizing that makes possible abolition and, and emancipation, not the Constitution. So I, 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 
I don't know. I, I think I have a, a more jaundiced view than, than, than your <laughs> summary implies. That's a tough, tough note to end on, though. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Zach, Zach yeah. si- since you think that deliberative mechanisms that involve the people, although structured deliberative mechanisms, do you think there's a way we could bring that into Article 5? I, I would hope so. I, mean, I love the idea of a national conversation about some of these things. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us have a really long punch list of things we'd want to change and uh, ERAs at the top of them. Um, and there are probably some things like that that are consensual and bringing people together, uh, you know, might work. Um, and uh, I think one of those things might be uh, the, the method of selecting the president, um, which is routinely bashed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it would be really interesting to have a national conversation about things like ranked choice voting uh, and other mechanisms. And you might actually reach some agreement for some of the more technical things, at least. And I, I'm with Jill. I, you know, whenever I think back to the U.S. Constitution, actually look at it closely, I realize it's not drafted at all perfectly or uh, as, as we seem to think. And when you look back at the process and think about the summer experiment of those couple months and how things went down, it makes you even less excited. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, it is symbolically helpful in some ways for us to have it. And so... Uh, even though as a political scientist, I would love the idea of having a full-on <laughs> uh, reconsideration of everything only because it would be intellectually interesting. I do think that might be dangerous in terms of we're already torn apart by faction. Uh, we need to be a little bit careful. I want to thank both of you because I do think that the conversation that we had should help us get started in having the larger conversation with more people about at least imagining the possibility of constitutional change. Just imagine the possibility of amendment. And I think that's an important starting point. And I want to thank you both. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. so much, Zach Elkins and Jill Lepore, for joining us on the Constitutional Crisis Hotline today. We would also like to thank our student, Taryn Gallagher, for her question. Thanks also to everyone at Fordham Law School, especially the Dean's Office and the Communications team for supporting this podcast. The Constitutional Crisis Hotline music is Climbing by Poddington Bear, a.k.a. Chad Crouch. And our logo was designed by Clint Webb at Agave Studios. The Constitutional Crisis Hotline is produced by Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock at Yellow Armadillo Studios. Studios, to whom we're very grateful. Please call the hotline with your question by emailing us at concrisishotline at gmail.com. Again, concrisishotline at gmail.com. Listen and subscribe to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.